You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2018. Today's episode is titled, Wealth Without Wisdom. Organizational leaders must recognize that one of the key tools, a means for strategically aligning with the will of God, is temporal wealth. God provides these resources to enable organizations to fulfill their mission in the divinely ordained meta-narrative. Wise leaders recognize the purpose of temporal provision is to support God's will for the organization and all stakeholders. This means, among other things, that management will use temporal resources to fulfill obligations on time, on scope, and on budget. This includes timely payment of workers, vendors, and subcontractors. Management will also guard against worker abuse and all forms of greed, particularly conspicuous consumption and excessive management compensation. Godly management will use temporal wealth as a means to support the will of God and therefore will gain transcendent wealth as well. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Wealth Without Wisdom. Well, this morning we want to continue our study of the book of James. And if you would, turn to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And uh, we'll continue with uh, James's very direct style of teaching and giving us insight into how we should be living under the Lordship of Christ. Remember, the great theme of this book is indeed uh, obedience to Christ, living under his Lordship, living under the will and ways of God in every area of life. And so James uh, does not uh, hold back anything. He comes at this very strongly and very directly. So let me read the text and make a few introductory comments, then we'll talk specifically about the various verses, then we'll talk about some of the theology found here, and finally we'll make some application. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 in the, the English Standard Version reads, Come now, you rich, weep and wail, or weep and howl for the miseries that come upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidenced against you, and eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Wow, what a direct text. What a powerful testimony here to the reality of what wealth can do when it's not properly stewarded. Well, this section begins a new chapter, chapter 5, but the theme of living humbly before God introduced in chapter 4 continues. The focus turns from strategic planning at the end of chapter 4 to the stewardship of resources here in chapter 5. Now remember, this epistle was written to professing Christians who presumably were knowledgeable in the scripture, and therefore uh, they, they did not, or James did not take time to lay down a theological foundation for his discussion. Rather, he just launches into these errors that he's presumably seen among these professing first century Christians. And specifically, the focus on this section is stewardship, the stewardship of abundance, 
when abundance is at least in part illicitly gained. See, these wealthy believers were probably in the minority. This probably wasn't uh, many of the people, but just a few. And interestingly, there are some commentators that think that James may have been writing actually to unbelievers. Well, I think the principles that he lays out here apply equally to believers or unbelievers, but the book is specifically written to believers. We see that in, in chapter, chapter 1, verse 1, where he talks about he's writing to those who profess the name of Christ who are part of the dispersion, that is the Jewish dispersion. Uh, many believe that, that, that one, chapter 1, verse 1 indicates that the book was written early on. It's one of the earliest epistles that we have, the earliest attempts to understand the Old Testament scripture in light of Christ. So we have here, uh, an, uh, I think, a very clear testimony in chapter 1, verse 1, that the, the readers were largely professing Christians. So I think that applies here as well. Now, since these professing Christians were wealthy and they were probably a minority, uh, James doesn't leave the others out. He speaks to both, the wealthy and to the poor to the masters and the slaves, to the employers and the employees. He speaks to both in this section. Now, James continues with his uh, imperatives. He's got something like 60 imperatives that he uses through the course of this book. And so far, we've covered 36. And in this section, we have another three imperatives. Now, the, imp the use of the imperative mood in the Greek language doesn't mean that, that every use is a command, but it means that that particular phrase where it's used was an imperative that may have been part of a command. And indeed, I think that's what you have here. For example, in the very first verse here where it says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. There's actually two imperatives there. The come now is an imperative and the weep is an imperative. So you have two imperatives used together here that are part of a bigger command. Then at the end, I want to synthesize what I think is the overall command that we're given here in this verse. And keep in mind that our objective is to always tie these commands back to the commands of Christ because under the, the Great Commission, we have a mandate to train people to obey the commands of Christ. That's exactly what the Great Commission tells us to do. So though we are saved by grace in the sense that we're regenerated by grace and in the sense that in the future, we will be glorified by the grace of God in this present time where we are living in the time of, of uh, sanctification, there is a level of cooperation that we human beings must engage with. That does not nullify the sovereignty of God. There is some, there's a mystery of God here at work where God is both sovereign and we are responsible in the process of sanctification. And James is a book about sanctification. So this is why commands are important. Commands are important so we'll know what to obey. And so James is laying out some specific insight into a command relative to how to deal with abundance, how to deal with excess, and particularly if you are an employer, uh, how do you properly manage these financial resources in such a way that God is glorified? Now, this is not the first time he's brought up money in this book. In chapter 1, he started talking about money in verses one, 9 through 12, when he talked about how the rich need to not glory in their wealth, but the glory in being humble before God because Christ alone provides the real wealth. The real wealth of life comes from knowing Christ and having eternal life. That's the real wealth. 
temporal wealth, financial wealth, hard assets, money, gold, silver, land, uh, you know, things like that that we would consider measures of wealth today. These are not real wealth. They're temporal tools. They only have value for here and now. The real wealth is eternal life. And so that's one of his big themes in chapter one. Then in chapter two, he reminds us to, to not use worldly metrics such as money to, as a measure of things. We don't make discriminations based on worldly metrics such as money. In chapter four, he continues talking about money. And first he talks about the importance of, of recognizing when greed is at work and greed is almost always at work when you are competing and you're quarreling with your competition. If you can't learn how to have friendly competition and recognize that the competition is more important than your own personal wealth and your own personal gain, if you can't get there, you're just going to be in um, what he calls a spiritual adulterer. In fact, he says a spiritual adulteress, a spiritual adulteress. He uses the feminine form of that word, which to their ears would have been very offensive because in that day and time, the males dominated, and to be a female was to be a second-class citizen. So he used, specifically uses the female version of the word adulteress to, to make a point, to really offend them. You know, James doesn't have a problem offending them. He is in their face, and if it, calling them a female adulteress wasn't enough, he then calls them an enemy of God. When you don't see money properly, when you don't view it properly, when you don't have the right motives about money, you are an enemy of God. And then at the end of chapter four, he talks about the wrong thinking about strategic planning. If you think being strategic in business is about making money, you don't get it. Being strategic in business is about alignment with God, discerning his will and doing his will. That is a huge lesson and one that almost no one, at least in the world that I've lived in, Almost no one, even in the professing Christian community, understands. And I found that when you even bring this up in the professing Christian world, there is like a big pause. People look at you like you've come from another planet and will say things like, well, you know, business is about money and we'll support missions. No, you don't get it. Money, financial resources are simply tools that we are to use to obey God. That's what money is about. So now in chapter five, he's going to turn to a specific problem that's apparently happening there among the believers in that first century where the bosses, the masters, many of whom may have been professing to be Christians, are abusing people. They're greedy. They're, they're claiming that their slaves are not properly submitting or their workers are not properly submitting, and therefore they're using that as a justification to not pay them and then they're using that money to live in lavish, luxurious lifestyles that are inappropriate for believers of Christ. So this is a very, very serious situation. And obviously for the workers, they're very upset about this, and they wonder if God is ever going to do anything about it. Is he ever going to respond to our problems? Does he really know we have these problems? So there's definitely a big issue going on here, so James is going to address it. And he's going to address it as he does, consistent with the rest of the book. He's going to be direct and in your face and not politically correct. James uh, says this in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I've, I've heard many, many 
uh, teachers and preachers throughout my Christian life. I've been a Christian a long time. I, I've heard, I don't know, I haven't tried to count up how many messages I've heard. Not only in, in a, what we call a church setting, I listen to a lot on, on video or listen on podcasts and over the years to tapes, all kinds of things. I mean, there might, in a, any given week, I might listen to five or six teachings. That is not unusual for me. I'll listen to them when I'm walking or when I'm, when I'm working out or sometimes just relaxing. I, I, I listen to a lot of teachings. I, I don't recall any teaching, any teaching that is direct and in your face like James. Come now, you rich, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's, that is not very nice. That seems to us to be very kind, unkind and very direct and very inappropriate. We don't, we don't talk to Christians that way. At least we don't think so. Well, James didn't have a problem because clearly he had a relationship with these people that was transparent enough and was real enough to where he could speak very directly to them. Now, this word translated rich here can be either used, understood literally or metaphorically. So it can be either literal wealth, you know, physical, tangible wealth, or metaphorical wealth. But it's clear that the context is referring, is referring to the former, the literal wealth. This is, this is material wealth that he has in mind. You can see by references to gold and silver and uh, things like that, that in this context that make that very clear. Then this command to weep and cry aloud. This idea of crying aloud is to cry aloud with grief. There's a profound sense that he's trying to shake them into reality. He's trying to say, don't you get it? The way that you are handling your abundance, that word rich there really is the word that means abundance. It, the suggestion is that you have more than just what you need to survive. So he's mandating them, you've got this abundance, which obviously comes from God, and God always has a purpose for abundance. Abundance is never given to us so we can just do whatever we want to do. Abundance is always given to us to do the will of God. And so he's saying to them, you need to be weeping and wailing because you, and the way you're stewarding the abundance God has given you, you are all, all you're doing is setting yourself up for judgment. And so that's a startling, a startling way to start this text. He goes on to say, your riches have rotted. And the idea of rot, something rotting, you think, well, what riches would rot? Well, probably food. That's the first thing that came to my mind is food will rot. And so, you know, that isn't a measure of wealth is food. We saw this, for example, in Luke chapter 12, when the, the gentleman that uh, had, had a windfall harvest of grain, he decided, well, I'm going to tear down my barns and build big barns, new barns, store up my grain, and I'm going to retire and live off my wealth, live off my abundance of grain. So that clearly was a measure of wealth to him. And of course, the parable there that Jesus tells in Luke 12 was a warning against that kind of thinking. If you're working to retire, wrong thinking. If you're working to gain tangible physical wealth, wrong thinking. Right thinking is storing up real wealth, wealth that God values, which is intangible wealth. So he's saying here now in verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Of course, garments were another measure of wealth, uh, more probably then than today. Uh, today, you can go down the store and get whatever garments you need. But back then, getting a garment was uh, very challenging. Somebody had to really work hard to do it. It cost a lot of money. So a measure of wealth would be uh, garments as well. 
So he's, he's coming at a very strict, very clearly identifying two areas of tangible physical wealth that would be very well known to them and very well value to them. Then he goes on to talk about gold and silver. Verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, gold and silver are precious metals. And since the beginning of time, starting in the garden, there's a reference to gold. It's almost like in, the, in Genesis chapter 2, God is laying out when he tells us in the garden there's gold. He's saying there's going to be a need for a monetary system, and here's going to be the basis of it right here. Now, he doesn't say that directly. That's just more of an inference that I've made as I've studied biblical economics. It seems that that's been the case. And indeed, through history, what's happened is gold and silver have largely been accepted as the basis for most monetary systems. Now, there are some different ones. There's some based on different metals, some maybe not quite as fine of metals as gold and silver, but basically gold and silver are the leaders in this area. And he's saying they're corroded. Now, corrosion is the oxidation of a metal. And when something corrodes, suddenly the metal is mixed in with things that are not des desirable. So you have something precious mixed in with something that's not precious. And so it's now making that which is precious, it's debasing it. And so now to recover what's precious, you have to go through a refining process. You have to heat it up and uh, extract all the uh, impurities, and then you have the pure gold or pure silver. Silver. So corrosion is actually a way to eat away at wealth. It's, eat, it's saying here this corrosion is destroying your wealth. Furthermore, he says corrosion will be evidence. This is obviously a personification. You don't think of corrosion speaking evidence. But this is what it's saying. It's, it's providing evidence against you, and it's going to be like judgment fire. This corrosion is going to stand as a testimony against you. This word here, uh, evidence here, is actually the word martyron, and martyron is the word that we translate testimony. It's also the, the, the root word of the English word martyr. A martyr is one who gives testimony or gives evidence about Christ and is willing to die for it. And so he's saying here is this debasing of your tangible assets is going to be a testimony against you, and it's going to speak of the ultimate judgment you're going to experience because you did not obey God and how you stewarded resources. Then he makes an interesting statement here in verse 3. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. Well, you know, on one level, there's nothing wrong with that. You should lay up treasures in the last day. It's just you're laying up, most likely, the wrong treasure. Now, that doesn't mean you're not supposed to save things tangibly. You should. But the greater treasure is not tangible wealth. The greater treasure is true wealth, the wealth that God values, the wealth that, that you can't buy with money, the wealth that comes from living a righteous life. It's wisdom. It's righteousness. It's reputation, it's disciples, it's you know, uh, godly, godliness with contentment. Those are things that are true wealth that are far better than any kind of tangible wealth. So he continues to point the way to the reality that temporal wealth, monetary wealth, tangible wealth is not the real wealth. Dennis in his teaching likes to make the distinction between riches and wealth. Now biblically, the Bible doesn't make the distinction quite the way Dennis does, and he acknowledges that. 
but he's trying to make the point. The Bible does make the distinction that worldly wealth is not of same value as eternal wealth or true wealth. That's a valid biblical distinction. He's just trying to use the word wealth and riches to make that distinction, which I think that's helpful as long as you understand what the Bible really says here. Going on, verse 4, Behold the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud or crying out against you. More personification. Your actions are going to be used against you because they're going to be testimony as to your heart. You've kept this out by fraud, which means that you have lied and deceived. You've conjured up some reason to not pay these laborers. They've done their work. They've harvested your field. They have served you well. He starts out this, this uh, particular verse here with another imperative. He's saying, behold, look at this, see this. This is, again, a very strong term. Pay attention to this. You are, you are doing a great injustice to these laborers who are serving you. You are fraudulently withholding their wages. And know this, that their cries for justice are heard by the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a reference to the Lord of the armies. It would be, modern day equivalent of that would be the commander in chief. The commander in chief has heard the cries of the injustice of you employers who have not paid your laborers as you should. Now keep in mind in those days, the laborers were mostly slaves because the Roman citizens didn't work. That was part of their culture. Work, work was beneath the dignity of the Roman citizens, so it was mostly the slaves that did the work. So these, these employers, these masters, are conjuring up and making up excuses to not pay the laborers as they should, and that very thing, God is paying attention. God is watching, and that will be used against them in the day of judgment. That is a really scary kind of verse. Then verse 5, he says, you have lived, referring to these, these, unjust, these unjust employers, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And obviously, the, it does, this is not to say that we shouldn't enjoy things. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you have taken resources that are not yours. You have withheld paying the, the, the wages of the workers and used their resources now to, to feed your own fleshly desires. That is wrong. That's an injustice. And as a result, you have, again, another personification here. You've fattened your hearts. You've, you've, you've made yourself, basically, you're self-condemning because you are doing things that will be used against you when you are held accountable for your actions. And finally, he says in verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I think the way to understand this is he pointing out again to you're making up all these excuses and you are fraudulently accusing these people of things that they didn't do. Maybe you're claiming that they're, they've been insubordinate, so I, I have a right to withhold their wages. You know, or maybe they didn't work hard enough, so I have a white right to withhold part of their wages. You know, they're coming up with some excuse, some fraudulent reason. And, and God is saying, I look at these people in that situation as righteous. They haven't really done anything wrong. And they don't resist you. It doesn't mean that they're perfect or sinless. I don't think that's what he's trying to say. 
He's trying to compare the fraudulent activity to the performance of the workers. And he's saying the workers were more righteous. They did the right things. They, they knew anything wrong. It's you employers that are doing the things that are wrong. So this is a powerful, powerful admonition to workers about their responsibility to properly steward resources and properly treat workers. Now let me just give you some some theological nuggets from this. The first one I think is very important to see is that true wealth is the only correct wealth. Temporal wealth, financial resources, money, land, precious metals, art, you know, any kind of collectible, uh, anything that you feel is valuable to you and the tangible is a temporal tool, meaning it only has value here and now. And the real value of a temporal tool is to serve the purposes of God. And all of us have three basic temporal tools to serve God's purpose. We have our time, we have our talent, and we have our treasure. And all three of those need to be used to serve the purpose of God. So we have to know theologically that true wealth is obedience, alignment with the will and ways of God, and temporal wealth temp are just tools to help us gain true wealth. The next theological point is, is to understand the role of unjust suffering. Undoubtedly, these workers felt like that is God ever going to hold these employers accountable? This is going on for so long. They mistreated us. They have beat us. They have accused us. They withheld our wages. They've made life miserable for us. This is so unjust. And so to the workers, I think that he's not directly addressed them, but if he were to do so, he would probably point us to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 21, where he talks about the relationship between the worker and the employer. Now, he uses the term servant and master because that was the common relationship of the worker-employer in the first century. He says, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. What credit is it if you, when you sin, you're beaten for what you endure? Okay, but if you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, that is, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, you were called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ <laughs> suffered an injustice for doing right. That is part of the call we have. As Christians, we're called to do right, and we may have to suffer for doing right. And if, if that we do, that's part of the call of God on our life. So big theological point. He doesn't really get into that, but clearly that idea ties in to what he's saying here because what he's going to go into in the next section of James is being patient. Well, the reason that's important, I think, is because obviously these workers were being very impatient, saying, Lord, when are you going to correct this injustice? And I think that James would be, he's going to, he tells them in James to be patient, and he might point to what Peter wrote here as well to point out, this is what you were called to do as well. Next, I want to point out that wealth is a tool that, we must, that must be stewarded properly. We have to realize that whatever you have, your time, your talent, your treasure, whatever it is, it's been sovereignly given to you by God. 
And whatever abilities you have to work, God's, God's giving you that. Whatever opportunities, whatever relationships, God's giving you all of that. So when you are rewarded for your work, this is God giving you st things to steward, and they must be stewarded properly. And this is part of the way that you grow and mature in Christ, is learning how to steward property well. And finally, I want to just point out, in this day and time when there are so few people that believe in a day of judgment. James clearly believed in a day of judgment. There's going to be a coming judgment day. There will be a testimony. What you see in James 5 is almost like a, uh, you can get this illusion of a court. And at the final day, we're all going to stand in, in this court. And what will be read will be our life story and all the things that we did and how we treated people and how we handled resources and decisions we made. And we will be asked, now, why did you do that? Did that line up with me? And, and of course, we know that the end will not be good if we don't have a good testimony. Now, we know in Christ, we are saved, in Christ alone. But we will still give an account for what we've done in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, Of professing Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, what is due for for what he, what he is due for, for what he's done in his body. And let me talk about some application. So first, let me just give you a command, a synthesize of command, I think that would be appropriate to extract from this, this training. I think you could say, we will all be held accountable for how we use temporal wealth. Don't serve temporal wealth. Use temporal wealth as a tool to obey God. If you misuse temporal wealth, the wealth you, you the wealth you can have, the wealth you have will be used and can be and will be used as a setup for judgment against you. So this is very important that we properly steward temporal wealth. Now we talked about trading up. Another application here is to really begin to think about trading up. Well, how do you trade up? Well, you trade up by beginning to use temporal resources, time, talent, treasure, and trade up to true wealth. True wealth is things like wisdom, reputation, righteousness, respect, divine revelation, godliness with contentment, genuine faith. These are all examples of real wealth, wealth that is more valuable than money. So for example, uh, in Proverbs 22, verse one, it says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, Favor is better than silver or gold. That's an example of how true wealth is better than temporal wealth. So we have to get very clear. We, I, we're here largely to try to trade up. I want to trade my time, talent, treasure for real wealth. Another application of this is to recognize that cash without character is a setup for judgment. And we probably all know people who are wicked, evil people that have a lot of money. Well, guess what? Psalm 73 talks about this, and it points out that they are on a slippery slope to judgment, that it will not go well for them. In the end, they will be held accountable, and they will be judged. So those of us who are mistreated by these people along the way, we need to know where they're going, and we need to, be, we need to pray for them. Pray that they'll repent because they don't realize the journey you're on. They're on a bad journey. This gonna, journey is gonna lead them to ultimate eternal death. And finally, we must learn to live 
with metaphysical awareness. You know, metaphysical awareness is always aware of how God sees every situation. We started out in the book of James talking about metaphysical awareness right at the beginning of chapter one, and that idea continues throughout the book. It permeates the book. And so we have to recognize that learning to be metaphysically aware, learning to see everything from God's perspective is the critical thing here. If we don't do that, we will be deceived and we will misuse and we will abuse and we will do injustices and our lives will not testify of Christ. And if our lives don't testify of Christ, we don't really have any basis for believing our profession. You see, the real test of whether or not we really are Christians is how we live. And I think that's why Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount on the last day, there's going to be many coming to him saying, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, I never knew you. And they're going to say, but, but look, we did all this stuff. We healed people. We cast out demons. We did all this stuff. And he's going to say, yeah, you did it. You know, you kind of did it like the Egyptian magicians imitated the, the supernatural signs of God in the, at, at the time of the Exodus. So there can be imitations. The reality is the real test of who truly knows Christ is a true Christian does the will of the Father. That is the real test. James is telling us again here, admonishing us in James 5, 1 through 6. He's admonishing us, do the will of the Father with your abundance. When he gives you an abundance, use it wisely, use it godly, righteously, justly. Do not defraud workers. Do not deceive. Do not use it for your own self-indulgence and conspicuous consumption. Use it to align up with God. And if you use it correctly, you will be trading up to true wealth, wealth that lasts for eternity. So may the Lord give us grace to do that in Jesus' name.